2: Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff, and we're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're so glad to have you listening to this podcast, and we hope that you will support the work that we do on this program by giving us a call today. The number is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org. This podcast may be an important part of your routine, um, so think about the times uh, whether you're on your commute or uh, on a run, all the times you listen to where we live and, and what that means to you. And if that's something you value, give us a call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks.
1: this is where we live from connecticut public radio i'm ray hardman in for lucy now pathangel. it's holy week for christians around the world a commemoration of the death of jesus christ and a celebration of his resurrection on easter tonight jewish people come together for passover a celebration of the jews exodus from slavery in ancient egypt the stories surrounding easter and passover have been depicted countless times in art and music Coming up on Where We Live, we visit Yale Divinity School and an exhibition of the Ten Commandments by Bruce Gillespie, an artist with Down syndrome. Later in the show, we'll talk with a Connecticut musician who has dedicated herself to learning the Sephardic Jewish music traditions of the Balkans. Her mentor almost single-handedly kept the tradition alive after the devastation of World War II. But first... The horrific fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris Monday shocked and saddened the world. What is it about Notre Dame and similar structures that elicit such emotion? How important is art to your spiritual life? Does a beautiful work of art enhance your religious experience? You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now from Paris is Camille, uh, but she's joining us by phone, Camille Surchuk. She's a professor of art history at Southern Connecticut State University, and she was in Paris on the day of the fire. Camille, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much. Maybe you can set the stage for us, take us back to Monday. Where were you in Paris when you heard about this? And and tell me about the reaction among people, uh, ordinary Parisians.
0: So I was heading to the National Library in Paris, which is in the south of the city. And on my way to the library, four fire engines raced past at an unbelievable speed. And then as I progressed towards the library, I saw a man holding his phone up filming something to the north. And so I followed his, his line of sight, and I saw huge billows of smoke and flames shooting into the sky, um, you know, uh, to the north of me, and... I I could see a steeple. I mean, Paris in the Middle Ages was known as the city of a hundred steeples, and so it's a a city in which there are many, many churches, and I wasn't sure right away which church I was looking at. And I quickly glanced at my phone and saw that it was Notre Dame, and it's almost impossible to describe the sensation. I mean, I I was absolutely stopped in my tracks, heartbroken, devastated, with such an incredibly... Uh, first of all, a huge surprise, mm. and then uh, just a, a tremendous, tremendous sense of sorrow and loss. And I, I made my way into the library. It's a library. I mean, you know, there, there were all sorts of people in there, but nobody really knew what was going on outside. And I ran into a friend and told her, and I mean, she really started to cry, mm. a Parisian by birth. You know, since then, everyone I've spoken to, all people want to talk about is, is the fire, and I mean, to some extent, one of my friends said, it's a little bit like um, New York after after 9-11. I mean, it's it's such a symbolic structure and such a tremendous sense of devastation, Obviously it's not a, a a terrorist situation and there was no loss of life those are big differences right. but the Notre Dame was so much the heart of the city and will and will be again and is you know still in its broken form um, that 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 people feel as though they've lost a, a family member
1: sure and that and that sense of unity uh, among all Parisians very similar to the situation from 9 eleven
0: yeah very much so very much so.
1: we think of of uh, this cathedral and uh, you know when I when I uh, you know, popped my head up from my desk on on Monday and I saw the fire coming out of Notre Dame, one of the things that struck me was this is a glass and stone structure. Why is it just so these massive flames? Maybe you can explain um, that there's a little bit more to the cathedral than just stone and glass.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So the there's no question that the majority of the structure is made of stone, but there's um, there are what, what the French call a charpente, or what we might call rafters or the attic, um, that uh, are between the, the massive stone vaults in the ceiling of the, of the cathedral and its roof. And it's that that charpente, that, those rafters, those wooden rafters, what, what were known in in, 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 uh, in the case of this church as the forest, because each one was made of a, of a single tree. Um, it was those wooden rafters that caught fire. Um, and then the lead of the roof also melted, and that helped to spread the fire. Now, I mean, there are many things in the cathedral that are flammable. And frankly, if you heat stone long enough, it will fall apart from, from heat. So the, the the notion that we think about Something being glass and stone doesn't make it entirely uh, inflammable. Um, and then, you know, there are things like the, the leading of the stained glass windows, right, that hold the pieces of glass together that also, subject to that kind of heat, can weaken. So there, and, and, you know, there are, of course, pews and so on. But the, the fire here was primarily in that attic, in those rafters. And, that's, and the wood was obviously very, very dry. It's, most of it dates from the 13th century. Um, and that's what caught fire.
1: We're talking with Camille Serchuk. She's a professor of art history at Southern Connecticut State University who is in Paris and was in Paris during the fire at Notre Dame. Camille, what do we know about the artifacts that might have been lost that, that were in there? Well, let's first talk about what was in there as far as artifacts before the fire. And um, d- did anything, uh, you know, make it through the fire?
0: Many things, fortunately, made it through the fire. I mean, again, this is primarily a fire in the roof of the church, and so um, uh, the flames shot upwards as I as I witnessed them myself. And therefore, most of the things, as far as we know, at least according to the reports that I've read, most of the things that were in the church were spared. Now, the most important things, I think, in the church, most people would agree, were um, uh, relics. Um, that came to France, relics believed to be, um, of the Passion that came to France in the 13th century. Um, and they include, uh, the Crown of Thorns, for example. Mm. Uh, and those were saved very, very quickly. Um, but there uh, there, you know, there's also a, a garment that belonged to Saint Louis, the, the king who brought the relics to, to Paris, uh, and who was canonized later himself. Um, uh, there were, there's all kinds of, there are all kinds of medieval objects, uh, sculpture and so on, um, sacred objects. And then paintings, um, uh, other kinds of, um, uh, paintings that seem to be okay, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, things get badly damaged by smoke by, and, and worse by water. Um, the stained glass, from what I've read, is damaged but not devastated. It's in place. Again, uh, the lead has probably been softened by the heat of the fire. Um, sometimes heat can cause the glass to change color, and so that it's going to need a very um, um, extensive renovation. But from what I've been able to gather, it's okay.
1: Notre Dame is hugely important in arc and architect, art and architecture history. Maybe you can explain some of that.
0: Well, so Notre Dame um, which begun in 1163. Um, is part of uh, the, the early years of the of the style of gothic that we call of, of architecture that we call the Gothic, uh, which originates in Paris about 20 years earlier, and it's a it's a really extraordinary moment in architecture partly because it represents tremendous technological innovations, um, uh, the kind of the combination of vaulting, and then in the case of Notre Dame, um, the, uh, the, the pointed arches that house those stained glass windows, um, and then uh, what were added later at this church were the flying buttresses. But that, that interrelationship between the internal structure of the church and the external structure of the church was the result of a process of experimentation, and that, that gives a result that is incredibly overwhelming uh, in the space because it's designed to be very, very tall and the windows are very large. Windows in Notre Dame aren't the largest of the Gothic windows, but, but they're bigger than they certainly had been in earlier churches and they're filled with stained glass. And so you have this soaring space filled with colored light. And it, re- it was intended as a, a kind of a metaphor for filling the space with the divine light of God and it, it, you really get this this transcendent uh, uh, sense sense in the building. It's like no other architectural space.
1: I was really overwhelmed by the response from people around the world and people who haven't even been there. Um, Tell me why this building connects with people on a spiritual level.
0: It's such a it's such a good question. It goes back, I think, in part to that to to the fundamental spirituality of the architecture, right? It, it the whole kind of design of the structure draws your eye upward, and the surfaces are so rich, and the the height is extraordinary. The light is this incredible blue and red. It's it's really it, it's designed to be a way of connecting with God, and it's. It, I mean, I, I don't, I, and I say this, and I, but I don't even think that you have to be a Christian or a believer to be to be deeply touched by the experience of the Gothic cathedral. It really is so such a, a powerful um, aesthetic experience. Mm. Now, as you know, if you are a believer, then I think that it that there there's there's a dimension that's added to that. Um, but I think that the aesthetic experience in itself is the certainly the foundation, and then. Um, every element of the church is decorated with sacred stories and uh and images and so it really helps you imagine helps you connect um, uh with uh with the divine and you know the the originator um, of the of the gothic really thought about the beauty of the church as being a way of allowing your mind to leave, a uh, kind of a vehicle. The art was a vehicle to, from the earth to heaven. It was uh, allowed you to let go of your earthly thoughts and allow your mind to ascend to heaven. And it, it, because of the height of the church and because of its richness, and that's true for us even in, in the modern world. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to live in, you know, in a thatched hut in the Middle Ages and walk sure. into a building like this. Um, but it, it, it is. So rich and so extraordinary that I think that it is a tremendous stimulus to faith.
1: Yeah, you know, we're talking about the intersection of art and religion today, and and I think Gothic cathedrals is the a uh, perfect example of that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and it, you know, and then its power, you know, is not um, something that only touches us, but it's touched generations, centuries of people. I mean, this book, this uh, the the book uh, um, Notre Dame de Paris, the the Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, is part of what spread the fame of this. Of this building and, and uh, assured its renovation. To be honest, and um, but it's you know it, the, the church has figured in art and in literature for centuries, and so its its, its image has traveled far, far, far beyond the city of Paris. Um, and I, you know, it's certainly uh the most visited gothic cathedral in France mm. it may be the most visited gothic cathedral in the world I and mean, i was looking at some numbers earlier yeah. i they estimate somewhere between 12 and 14 million visitors i mean, you know the vatican gets half of that so it it's it, it really it really is something that's visited by so so many people and therefore the whole world i think um, has seen a picture of it, knows about it, you know, connects to it, um, and, and that might explain some of the powerful sense of loss that people felt watching it burn.
1: Right. Camille Surchuk, before we let you go, real quick, what's the sense in Paris today a few days on?
0: Uh, we, uh, efforts to try and evaluate how quickly it can be rebuilt. Some dis- there's some dispute about that. Macron, the president, has said five years. The experts are saying closer to 15. Um, but I think people know that the Church will—people are sad now, but they know it'll be rebuilt.
1: Camille Sirchuk, thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Camille Sirchuk is a professor of art history at Southern Connecticut State University. She's in Paris and was in Paris on the day of the fire. We end this segment with a performance of the rousing toccata from Charles-Marie Vidor's Organ Symphony No. 5, played on the grand organ at Notre Dame by Olivier Latry on the cathedral's one of the cathedral's three full-time organists. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Ray Hardman. Coming up, we take a field trip to the Yale Divinity School for an exhibition of art by a Down syndrome artist that depicts the Ten Commandments. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
2: Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff. We're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, and we want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Where We Live podcast. Uh, We're taking a moment also to ask you to support the work that we do on this program to ensure that it is here for weeks and months and years to come. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure. All you have to do is go to the phones 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org. I think one of the tricky things about a, a live radio show is uh, we're, we are only in one time block and that might not be a time you're able to listen. So that's the, the great part of the podcast. You can take where we live with you wherever you're going at whatever time. So if that's something that's important to you, something you rely on to learn about what's happening in your community and in the world, the number to call 1-800-584-2788 or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate and thanks.
1: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Ray Hardman, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. During this next segment, we're going to take you on a trip to New Haven to visit an art exhibit. The works on display are illustrations of the Ten Commandments, and they're created by Bruce Gillespie. He's a Connecticut artist with Down syndrome. We'll meet up with Bruce's mentor and former special education teacher Sam Goldenberg for a tour of the exhibit. I'm here at the Yale Divinity School with Sam Goldenberg, and we are looking at these magnificent works by Bruce Gillespie. And Sam, I know you've been working with Bruce for a long time. Tell me about how you and Bruce met.
3: Well, I was teaching in Danbury at the Danbury Regional uh, Center at the time. This is in the 1970s. I'd say about 1974, and Bruce was one of my students. And we had a little coffee shop that the students ran and he would be the waiter, and he would take the orders by pictures. He'd check off pictures, and he loved that. But what I found was that every chance he got, he would go off, find some paper and pen, and he'd be drawing, and that was his love. Any second that he wasn't, wasn't working, he would be drawing. So we sort of tapped into that. At that time, we started doing a jazz concert series. And we had Bruce, our, we said, he's so good, we'll make him our staff artist. So we had him draw, you know, the greatest jazz musicians of all. I, I liked how Bruce saw things. He's 24 years old at this time, and he's it's like a really creative, new to the world sort of fresh approach. And I had always wanted to do a children's Bible, so I started working with, with him on that. And I got, the first chapter was uh, the creation, which he did. Then we started the second chapter, which would be the Ten Commandments, and he did that. And then uh, after that, um, his family moved to Florida. We lost contact for like 35 years. Wow. 35 years. Yeah. So I never expected to meet Bruce again. and But I always saved his drawings. I knew they always were great. So I got a phone call from somebody someday, uh, a friend of mine had gone to a homeschool program. Her mother was in this homeschool program. And it turns out that Bruce had moved back to Danbury, and he also was attending this homeschool program during the day. And all over the walls, (laughs) put all over the walls were his paintings. Mm. So my friend walked in, and she said, that's Bruce. Mm. Like, you know his work. When you see it, you know it's him. And so... I went up there 35 years later. and He said, "It's nothing's changed." He's at the table and he's drawing and everything. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I go up to him. Uh, don't know whether he recognized me or remembered me, uh, but he says, "Hi, buddy," and that was it. <laughs> and then <laughs> welcome me and then sat with him and everything like that. That and really I'm, is
1: extraordinary.
3: It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. 35 years later. Yeah. And then. Uh, now that he was back, I said, "Okay, now's the time to really exhibit his work." Yeah.
1: yeah. Let's go back to Let's go back to when you first met Bruce, because I'm curious. Um, you know, a, a timeline. Was this early in the process of kind of uninstitutionalizing
3: people with Down syndrome? Right. right. And Bruce, uh, a matter of fact, when he was born, uh, his parents were told to just leave him with us. We'll we'll, we'll put him in an institution because he's not going to be able to do anything. And he would have gone into an institution right then. So his parents went off for a weekend by themselves for three days and they talked about it and stuff like that and they, they decided no we're gonna take him home and raise him as if everything's normal. So his parents were tremendous people, tremendous people.
1: Why don't we talk now about, um, about Bruce's process. How does Bruce set about uh, drawing something that's so thematic, like the Ten Commandments, like the creation, like like jazz. I mean, do you offer him suggestions and then
3: he goes with it? Does he need that little little push? All he needs is the guide, like for the commandments which we have here. I give him a guide. Do you, do you know Moses? Do you know the the Ten Commandments? And he knew. He goes up to the mountain and he receives the thing. He knew that. So as soon as he has it in his head, and you just let let him be. And like if you go to the first commandment, uh, which is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of slavery, to be free. So I said, Bruce, do you understand that? People were, were not free. They were slaves, and they became free. He said, yeah. Can you draw something like that? Yeah. And then out of that, it's just such a happy picture of a really abstract sort of, um, how do you illustrate that? Um, He's he's already established a nuclear family of mother, father, and baby, and just a pure joy. Like, I I could feel it right away. I knew the the other commandments would be more specific and easier to draw, but even something as difficult as that to draw, how do you draw that? He had an idea. He says, you know, these people are free.
1: Tell me about the materials he uses. He uses uh, uh, markers. That's it, just markers. Just
3: markers? Pen- pencils or pens? Or? No, no pens or pencils, just markers. That's all he needs. You never advise him on colors or what to do or how to draw it. Once he has that idea, he, he knows. You know? Yeah. And, and he's creative and funny. I would tell you about one that he did is honor your father and mother. The, the only picture that Bruce drew himself into is honor your father and mother. Is, is Bruce the waiter holding the, the waiter, holding the uh, the eggs and the, the orange waiter. juice? Yes, you know? He's a waiter, I said, uh, how would you honor your <laughs> how would you honor your mother and father? Oh, you know said, yeah, I, I got this. He wouldn't even tell tell me, but he knew how he would honor his mother and father. This is the only one where a, another character steps in, and that's him. It's a waiter. He, you know, he gets this from being a waiter at the coffee shop, <laughs> the same thing, the carryover. Oh, right, right. Okay, now I'm going to serve you uh, uh, toast, bacon, and he's serving them.
1: I want to talk about, because one of the things that really impressed me about this collection of, what is it, a dozen?
3: Uh, there's ten commandments there's and ten. then two more of Moses. Right. There's really this thematic
1: thing that goes through all of them. Um, and the first thing I want to talk about, you have the, basically the scene of the commandment is set as if you're peering through a window. Yes. But then framed around that, he's done some different things, and it looks like two different things. One would be a black border that looks like uh, lightning bolts, right. but then another border where there's angels on either side of the window.
3: And I'm wondering, is there is there a reason for that? That's how he decided to draw, because the, the ones that have the angels is like, do something good. You know. When you get to another scene, like... You should not murder or you should not steal. You know, those are the the lightning bolts. He's trying to say in his own way, don't do this.
1: There's also something iconic about uh, his use of these characters where the bad people are dressed as robbers or they have prison (laughs) garb on or something along those lines. Is he he a fan of uh, television and
3: movies? Yeah, yeah, cartoons Mm and. and, and he drew the for murder. He just drew another very large, almost prehistoric man um, committee. Yeah, you here. look like a caveman. Like a caveman, like it's almost like prehistoric to to do this. Right. Yeah.
1: We're talking with Sam Goldenberg. He has been a mentor for Bruce Gillespie, going back to the '70s. But there was this gap uh, where he had he and his family had moved away, and then he moved back to Connecticut, and you two
3: reconnected. Yeah.
1: Sam, when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, I would imagine some commandments were easier to understand than others that may, may need a little bit more explanation, maybe a little bit more concepts right. for him. Right,
3: right. Some commandments he knew right away, like, you should not steal, he knew right away. Mm-hmm. You should not murder, he knew right away. Um, in terms of, uh, the, you should not commit adultery, I had to explain it differently. He didn't, wouldn't know that word. Sure. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even know that idea. I had to put it to him like, uh, okay, so let's say the father's with the mother and the baby, and the father decides to go and be with another woman. Now, he didn't like that at all. He didn't like that at all. So he drew the, the mother and baby crying at home. He, he understood it.
1: Uh, let's go to that painting, because I, I thought that was really interesting. So again, we have this theme of the, the family, the mother and the father, and the baby.
3: Explain it. Well, uh, the the father leaves. The mo- mother and, and the baby are just crying, and they're back home. The the, the mother now looks doesn't look so good. But it, he captures a lot in it. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't explain it to him totally. But he he somehow captures sadness. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about this setting picture. And this is Moses coming off the mount with the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And. It's really remarkable because he has musical notes for the scripture on the
3: tablets. Yeah. yeah that's, that's amazing. It's amazing. It says in a million years, you know, you would think that you'd write a word. Right. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to put musical notes in because it's just like music to him. Mm. So, and, and Moses is very, very happy and delighted. He's you know. got a
1: gleeful look on his yes, face. Yes, yes, yes. Sam Goldenberg. You've lived with these paintings a long time, these, these works of art. This is Holy Week for Christians, uh, Passover for Jewish people. Um, for people who want to come and see this, what, what do you hope they get from it? What do you hope that they interpret from this?
3: I, I, I think the Ten Commandments contain a lot of meaning to them, and I think if, if people come to see it, instead of just looking at it and quickly going through them, I think they need time and meditation. Do I appreciate the fact that I'm free? Yeah. Uh, an inward meditation, because that's where it all comes from, from Brooks. It's, a, it's a inward. And well, Can I, I think, tell you what I get from it? Okay.
1: I, I, I've known the Ten Commandments since, since I was little, and the thing that moves me is that there is this naiveness, this naivete to these works that kind of frame them in a different way, and kind of put them in a more simplistic context for me. Right. That I think in the adult world, we, the lines get a little bit blurred and for Bruce, the lines are just completely separated.
3: Lines, that's a wonderful way of putting it. That's yeah. a wonderful way of putting it. You know, even if you're a student growing up and you're learning the Ten Commandments, you, you know, you, you're not meditating on them, you're memorizing them. And this hopefully takes you out of that formal t- thought process it moves you into a very personal feeling way.
1: Yeah. Well, Sam Goldenberg, thank you for taking the time to show us these these wonderful works by Bruce Gillespie. Thank you. That was Sam Goldenberg, the former teacher and mentor of Bruce Gillespie, a Connecticut artist with Down syndrome. Bruce's illustrations of the Ten Commandments will be on display at the Yale Divinity School through mid-June. Coming up, the hauntingly beautiful traditional music of the Sephardic Jews from the Balkans was almost lost to history during World War II. One woman made it her mission to rescue it. Now in her 90s, she's keeping the tradition alive by teaching it to other musicians. Don't go away. We are in the midst of our spring membership campaign. It is your support of Connecticut Public Radio that helps bring to light fascinating stories like Bruce Gillespie. Here's two of my colleagues to tell you how you can be part of the amazing work being done every day on this radio station. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Ray Hardman in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. A new documentary and performance next month at Temple Beth Hillel in South Windsor explores the life of Sephardic singer Flori Jagoda. The Bosnian born Jagoda is called the Keeper of the Flame of Sephardic and Ladino Music. Flory is 95 now and has mentored many musicians over the years, ensuring the music of her ancestors endures. Joining me in the studio is one of Flory Jagoda's students. Susan Feltman-Gaeta is a member of Trio Sephardi, a Northern Virginia-based ensemble who have all studied with Jagoda. The ensemble will perform at the event in South Windsor next month. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Susan, welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Now, before we get into Sephardic music and Flory's story, let's let's hear a little bit of it. Um, this is from your latest CD. It's called La llave de España. <laughs>
4: Onde está la llave que estaba en cachón? Mis nonos la trucharon con grande dolor de su casa de España, de España, de su casa de España, de España.
1: Beautiful music from Trio Sephardi, La Llave de España. What are we listening to here?
5: La Llave de España is called The Key from Spain, and it's a composition written by Flori Jagoda, And it refers to the legend that when the Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492, with the edict of expulsion, they were asked to leave. Within a certain amount of time, they could bring very little with them, or they could convert to Christianity. But Many of them left. We don't know exactly how many. And they brought the key from their homes in hopes that they could someday return. And if you go into a Sephardic home today, you might see an old key hanging on the wall.
1: Now, if I were to hear this and not know that this is Ladino, I would think it was Spanish.
5: It is a Spanish language. It's the Spanish language of the Spanish Jews. It's an old Castilian Spanish, centuries old, mixed in with Hebrew letters, written in Hebrew letters, like Yiddish. And it was the language of the home, the family. Flori spoke Ladino or Judeo-Espanol when she was in her home. And then when she was in school, she spoke serbo croatian
1: So Judeo-Espanol is the same thing as Ladino?
5: Yes, it is. Right.
1: Very interesting. Let's talk about the music because when you hear this, you don't necessarily think of this as quote-unquote Jewish music. You think of more klezmer and that type of thing.
5: Right. The Sephardic music that I sing is very Balkan, so it is from Bosnia, and the Jews settled in the Ottoman Empire when they left Spain. Many of them, the Empire welcomed them, so that was Greece, Turkey, former Yugoslavia, and so it has very Balkan rhythms. A very classic rhythm that we sing is a seven-eight beat, Mm. which is from the Balkans, and uh, it is very distinct from klezmer, which is Eastern European. I'm Ashkenazi. My grandparents came from Russia. My parents, Francis and Philip Feltman, spoke Yiddish in the home. My grandfather played in the Yiddish theater, played the licorice stick, his clarinet. <laughs> and I grew up with that tradition. Um, and it is very different. This is definitely, um, after having an experience of living in Buenos Aires for eight years in Argentina, the Spanish and the Judaism all came together for me. So it kind of resonates with me a lot.
1: I would imagine, too, when you're studying something that is so concentrated in one particular area that it does take a certain amount of study. And I just noticed from that little bit that we heard that I would imagine it took some time to learn the, uh, like you said, the rhythms, but then there's also some vocal ornamentation in there that seems like it might take a little bit of time to work out.
5: Yes, the tradition originally was a women's a cappella tradition, and the first instrument was the tambourine. So every woman received a tambourine in her home, And Flory, she says it's difficult to teach. There are these trills in the voice. Mm. And that was something that I could pick up. I have a good ear. And we worked on it, but it was something that was also natural for me. It's a difficult thing to teach. It's a very special ornamentation. And this is folk music, what I sing. And so many of the people who studied with Flory, perhaps cantors or classically trained vocalists, sometimes had a difficulty with this part of it. And she would say... Her grandmother, she would quote all the time, in Ladino: "Si no puedes cantar con alma, no cantes," which means, "If you can't sing with soul, don't sing." <laughs> and so it's it was uh, a very emotional uh, piece of the music. Yeah, the, right. that that vocalization, which was is really lovely, actually.
1: Right, and maybe classical musicians who are used to having something notated for them, this might be a little bit trickier for them.
5: Right, a lot of what we do is by ear.
1: You mentioned that the rhythms are very much of the Balkans. Is it the harmonies, is it the key itself that makes it uh, have that tradition of Sephardic music?
5: Well, a lot of the keys are like in a minor key. Mm-hmm. Well, Florey is a very contemporary composer. I mean, She started composing when she was in her 40s or 50s. She's now 95. So some of the things we learned were very traditional, and they were ballads and romances that she heard her mother and her grandmother sing, which would go on verses and verses telling stories all a cappella. Mm. But the music that she's composed within the last 40 years is a more contemporary sounding. Because part of her mission is to keep the sound interesting for people to want to sing along. And she's also celebrating her family, who was completely lost in the Holocaust, with the exception of her parents and one uncle. So she's writing this celebratory music as well. So it's not quite—many of her pieces are folk pieces that are not quite like the traditional a cappella authentic pieces. But we do both of those. She's taught me both of those.
1: Yeah, let's get into Flori Jagoda's life. Uh, she is considered the keeper of the flame of this music. It sounds to me like when they were allowed into Bosnia by the Ottoman Empire, what is now Bosnia, uh, by the Ottoman Empire, they were able to, for a long time, keep their traditions alive and to flourish until World War II. Exactly. How old was Flori when when all this happened?
5: She was about fourteen or fifteen, mm. and her parents had moved to Zagreb. They had left the village in Vlasenica and wanted to be in the city. They were—her father had a business in Zagreb when the Nazis came in to the city. And that's when he could see what was happening. They were all given Jewish yellow badges to put on their clothing. Jidio, Jew. And they were not allowed to go to certain places. And finally he said, we need to leave. And he first sent Flory ahead of them, got false papers from friends on the coast— and sent her to split and the famous story is that he told her to her first instrument was the accordion called the harmonico and he said play your accordion and don't speak to anyone he gave her false papers we will come we will follow she got into the compartment on the train and she started singing her Subcroatian Croatian songs playing her accordion everybody sang along with her and the conductor didn't even ask her for her ticket mm. And four or five <laughs> hours later, she made it to split, and her parents were able to follow a few weeks later. and they were ended up being uh, refugees in the island of Corchula. Eventually, they crossed the Adriatic into, into, into Italy, where she met her husband Harry Jagoda, who was a GI in the army in, in Bari, Italy.
1: And then she was a, she came to the United States. She was a housewife. and did what all along was she singing and recording and that type of thing?
5: Well, she came with Harry, and then they were able to bring in her parents. But the entire Altarat family, which is her family in the village, her tias, her aunts, her nona, her grandmother, all of her cousins, there were 46 people in that family, were all thrown in a mass grave, marched out of the town. Mm. And so her mother refused to speak in Ladino and would never sing a note again. Mm. So it wasn't until her parents passed away that she decided to open up this chest of music and start singing and tell her children about it. Her own children didn't even know the full extent of her story. So she started composing, singing, um, performing with her children, and traveling, and introduced a wealth of music to the Washington DC area. And now it's totally international to the world, really.
1: We're talking with Susan Feltman-Gaeta. She's a master artist with Virginia Humanities. She teaches and preserves Sephardic music. She's a member of Trio Sephardi. They're going to be performing in early May. We're going to talk about that event in South Windsor in just a bit. But tell me about your involvement with Flori. When did you meet Flori? And tell me about that whole experience.
5: Well, I met Flory in a very unusual way. I met her daughter first. She wanted to improve her guitar a little to accompany her mother. And I was teaching at the time. And her siblings asked me to sing Flory's parts in a huge concert that was honoring her. All of her students would be there. She would be in the audience. And as a surprise, they asked me to sing Flory's parts while they accompanied me. So I kind of met Flory being Flory with her kids. (laughs) And afterwards, she said, you've got to keep singing this music. And then we started working together. And then she became a National Heritage Fellow in 2002. And then the Virginia Humanities has a wonderful folk life program where a master artist takes on an apprentice to study formally for a year to continue their art. So Flori chose me to be her apprentice for a year. And now I'm a master artist and I have an apprentice. So I met her that way. And then we started performing. Um, and then we formed the trio with Howard Bass, who was in Trio Sephardi with us, the three of us, Flori, Howard and I had a, toured quite a bit with Flori as well.
1: Tell me what a lesson with Flory was like.
5: Lesson with Flory was um, very instructive. She was a tough teacher, a very passionate, and she would ask to repeat many times. We would go over phrases. She also taught me things like breathing. Like you, this is a space. She taught a lot about how you breathe in a song, uh, the emotional part. How you and Fortunately, I am fluent in Spanish. I needed to understand what I was singing. Yeah, And so we would go over things many, many times. She rehearsed a lot and to work with these nuances. She was an excellent teacher and would teach anybody who wanted to learn Sephardic music.
1: Susan, tell me about this event uh, coming up in May in South Windsor.
5: Well, there was a, a documentary of Florey's life. And we were able to get the rights to that through the filmmakers. And we've extracted her interviews. It was filmed at the Library of Congress, so there are lots of performances in it. So we've taken out the musical performances, extracted her interviews, added some graphics, some more footage, and Trio Afardi plays live music in front of the screen. It's an interactive multimedia presentation. And we're debuting it at the Temple Bethel in South Windsor on May 4th. At eight o'clock, and our partner is the United States Holocaust Museum, and they will be there to introduce it as well. You can get tickets by calling the synagogue or at the door that night on the on May fourth, and it's it's I think it's going to be a very special uh, presentation that I think people will really enjoy.
1: Yeah, well, Susan Feldman Gaeta, thank you so much. Today is Passover. Let's go out with the relevant song. Uh, tell us a bit, little bit about this song, and we're hearing it's called Pesach al-Mano. Pesach almano,
5: Pesach is Passover, almano is at hand. It starts with Purim lano, Purim's over, Pesach almano, Pesach is coming. The matzahs will be baked. And Senor Rubi, the rabbi, says to the tias, the ants, no comer el pan ocho dias, don't eat your bread for eight days. And you could tell the Jewish families in the village by all their furniture being out in front before they would, the holiday would come and the children would clean. And and this is a uh, celebration that Flory wrote about that holiday in her village.
1: I'm Ray Hardman. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Check out WNPR.org/slash where we live for more about the show. Thanks for listening.